Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Katherine Meeks from the Center for Racial Healing. And we are doing a series of special podcasts with the wonderful presenters that came to be with us for the International Women of Color and Wellness Workshop. And I am so delighted to have my good friend and one of the presenters, Heidi Kim, with me for this session to talk some about her work and what she does and why she does it. So welcome, Heidi. Can you just tell our audience a little bit about yourself and what you do and why you do it? Absolutely, and um, thank you, uh, Dr. Meeks, for it's just a wonderful experience to be here. I'm very, very grateful, uh, especially since we've been talking about this and dreaming about this for a couple of years now. So it's lovely to actually be here at the culmination of all that dreaming and hard work. Um, <clears throat> I'm Heidi Kim. I am Korean-American. I was born in Korea. Uh, my family immigrated permanently to the United States when I was about one. And um, it's very interesting because uh, I'm now the director of a Center for Servant Leadership at the Breck School in uh, Golden Valley, Minnesota, outside of Minneapolis. It is an Episcopal school, preschool through 12th grade. And I am loving being back in education. Prior to that, how I met you was through my work as the staff officer for racial reconciliation for the Episcopal Church. And I think the best way to describe how I came to this work is to tell you a little bit about my mother, um, who uh, came to the United States as an international student in the 1950s. She came on a, a Christian scholarship from PEO, a Christian women's organization in the United States. Um, her grandfather was an ordained Christian minister. Um, that was pretty early on in Christianity in Korea. Um, and she went to college. She got her undergraduate degree from Skerritt College in Nashville. And uh, Skerritt at the time was very progressive. They had integrated dorms for their women students. Um, she uh, had other international students who were friends, and that was where she learned about... Um, she says that that's where she became Amer an American because she saw the racism towards black people every single day. Um, one of the first books that she read in English when she came to the United States was Up From Slavery by Booker T. Washington. And she said, oh, okay, so this is what America is really about. It's not about this democracy narrative that people have about all people are created equal, but it's really about this. This is the legacy here. Um, she, as an Asian woman with very light skin, was sort of not easily definable racially at that time. She had a friend from India who had very dark skin, and her dark-skinned friend would be asked to ride in the colored cars. Mm -hmm. And they told my mother that she would be allowed to ride in the whites-only cars, but she would always go with her friend. Um, and then she told me that she would choose to ride in the colored cars because people were nicer to her there. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, my... My early formation was with his Christian mother who understood something about racial dynamics in the United States. Um, so in many ways, her introduction to American culture was through a notion, a philosophical and theological notion of Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that sort of shaped my upbringing. Um, grew up in a predominantly white town in Iowa, Muscatine, Iowa, which was a really lovely place. Um, though my brothers and I joke that when we all went off to college, the Asian population went down by 60%. <laughs> um, and, you know, people were, were kind and lovely. And then when I went to college and kind of got politicized, um, a lot of my friends were African-American. 
Uh, I was a Korean kid from a small town in Iowa, and I just was really interested in issues of equity and justice. And it's kind of stayed with me uh, my whole life. Um, And it's interesting that I ended up doing this work in the church because my understanding was, as a small child, was that churches were racist and misogynist and all of those isms. Um, Because when my mother, when we were in Iowa, expressed a desire to be ordained, the Methodist pastor there said, you know, how dare you? What could a Oriental woman possibly offer to God's people? Um, and so we didn't go to church. Yeah. <laughs> and now, um, and so now I, maybe, you know, maybe that's a full circle story that, that I ended up doing um, racial healing work um, in the church because of all of those early formative experiences. And how does education work? with that. Yeah, so um, I was in graduate school getting a degree in sociology, you know, and um, my spouse and I went to Colby College in Maine for a number of years. Um, I taught there as an adjunct um, because there wasn't a lot of other work for me there in a very small town. Um, People would go away on sabbatical and I'd get a one-year teaching contract. Um, And we lived on campus and we spent a lot of time with first-generation college students. Um, That was oftentimes students of color and in Maine, also um, uh, students from uh, lower income backgrounds in Maine, from the rural areas of Maine, um, students who didn't know that they could do things like ask for an extension on a paper if they got sick, because they didn't have that. They weren't raised with that kind of cultural capital. Um, they didn't know how to navigate the cultural process. And so those issues of thinking about uh, educational equity and what is the experience for these um, young people on our campus became kind of what I did. Um, So even though I was teaching, what I was really valuing was the outside of classroom time with those students and helping them to um, figure out what is it it that I really want to do here and trying to um, use any leverage that I have as an an adult in the community to try to improve um, their capacity to learn in an environment that felt safe and Mm -hmm. nourishing Mm -hmm. and enriching for them as opposed to feeling like they were under attack. and so then that's kind of extended. I was a diversity director for a while at a Jesuit high school in Seattle. And that's kind of where I came out of the closet about, you know, being a Christian, <laughs> working with the Jesuits. I had I never dreamed in a million years that I would become really good friends with Catholic priests. Um, and then that, so, you know, I had my own biases about religious life and religious people. Um, and, you know, they were the ones who first invited me to pray publicly and that was such a eye-opening and soul-opening experience. Um, and to be able to talk about issues of justice um, using a language of faith, using the idea of being followers of Jesus, of wanting to live like Jesus and love like Jesus. Um, and I thought, you know, okay, so there are all of these different pieces of my life that now seem to be coming together in this way. So then I did that work in the church. Um, and then I realized how much I missed being in a community long term and how much I really missed being with children and students. Uh, and so now I'm uh, teaching sixth grade religion, um, an Old Testament class, which my friends in the church who know me crack up every time that they hear that because <laughs> they cannot imagine me doing that. Um, and, and those sixth graders have really become my mentors because they're so unafraid to ask hard questions about justice and equity and love and and what does God have to do with any of it? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I am really excited to be back in a place where I can be mentored by sixth graders. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. <laughs> and they have such um, brightness and 
yes. clear-eyedness about whatever it is they're talking about. That's I mean, right. They, they, whether they're right or wrong doesn't matter. They see it clearly. That's right. And they so. haven't learned to be afraid to ask the question. Right. Right. Um, one of my students asked me if all terrorists are religious. You know, and, mm. I, and I could tell that his follow-up question was, and if I think that that's true, and why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what is it about religion that takes people to extremism, if I want to put it into adult language? Mm-hmm. And I thought, ooh, we really need to be having these conversations with our young people. Um, mm-hmm. Because if, if, if I can't respond to that question or create place for us to have a conversation about that, this young man could go away with the notion of, oh, well, religious people don't want to t- ask the tough questions. Mm-hmm. And what, so I don't have any time for them. Um, if I don't have time for him, he's not going to have time for us. And uh, so that's been uh, a real, um, another sort of eye-opening, spirit-opening, soul-opening experience is to experience these sixth graders and their really tough questions. Well, that's, I'm, I'm so excited that you're able to uh, be in a space where you can merge the, the desire to do the justice work with education and with young people because I think that's one of the main places where we need to be engaging this work right. with, of trying to get them to see the world in a different way. And we've given them uh, narratives that don't work, and they right. need new narratives. So you have a chance to have to help create some new narratives yes. for those young people. Well, and also to, um, to learn from them about their mm-hmm. narratives. We have um, some transgender children in our community, um, and... Um, you know, for the adults, people my age, um, it's been kind of a, it's been a transition to think of a student that we knew as male in, in younger years is now wanting to identify as a girl. Um, mm-hmm. And, but for the students, it's, it seems completely natural. And they have adjusted, you know, very, very easily and mm-hmm. are very easily able to honor the personhood of their friend. Um, without getting caught up in um, their own anxieties about what does this say about me. Um, Mm -hmm. And so they're also helping me to broaden my own narrative of how do I think about things like gender identity. Um, And I think it's it's in that dialogue. It's into, um, this is going to be my talk about leaning into intergenerational wisdom, Um, Mm -hmm. that that's where the growth happens, you know, Mm -hmm. that we're not trying to convince each other of what is right and wrong but that we're really kind of airing it all out together mm-hmm. um, so that we both have a better understanding of, of what it is that we actually are committed to. Well, I was going to ask you, what do you think we can uh, do to, to address more fully the issue around marginalizing people? I mean, we marginalize people in, for so many different reasons and in so many different ways. So as, as you have done the work you've done around justice issues and now as you teach children what how do we how do we how do we work on that how do we do something that helps to interrupt that process of deciding that uh, there are others uh, to other people or us and them we're, right. we're so that we're so quick to fall to that so i think that is um i think that should be the deep deep question for any person of faith, um, is how am I complicit in othering mm-hmm. the person standing right in front of me? Um, that has been kind of my own spiritual journey. And you know, I think I, as, as I'm talking about the sixth graders and how they have responded to their transgender classmates, 
you know, it's pointed out to me, yeah, I got some stuff. I'm carrying some baggage around this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I went to hear Dr. Ibram X. Kendi when he was in Minneapolis, who wrote this book, How to Become an Anti-Racist. Um, and I was, you know, trying to get a sense of his argument of what is the locus of change. But what many of my white colleagues were telling me is that it was very liberating um, to hear his understanding that all of us have within us the capacity to be racist and anti-racist at the same time. That we can mm-hmm. have a racist idea in one moment right alongside an anti-racist idea in the next. Mm-hmm. And that it's up to us to continue to um, engage in working on becoming more anti-racist. And he said that the heart of racism is denial and the heart mm-hmm. of anti-racism is confession. Um, and that's not a public confession of, oh, I read all of his books, so I'm done. But mm-hmm. it's really about the confession of how, how am I failing to see the full humanity of the person that's in front of me? Um, in my work in the church, the real challenge for me was how am I called to be in right relationship with white supremacists? Because if I want to call myself a follower of Jesus, then I have to remember that those are also beloved children of God. How am I called to love them as God loves them? And I haven't figured that out yet. Um, I really haven't. And so where I started on that was with what is my own complicity in the shaming of white poverty? And I had to say, I have used words like redneck or trailer trash or um, hillbilly or um, derogatory words about white poverty. And I'm like, okay, so I need, to, I need to work on my own understandings. And part of that understanding came out of, as an Asian immigrant living in a small town in mostly white, where there were working class folks who I was very afraid of, that my fear doesn't allow me to have a free pass. Um, that, you know, how do I turn my own fear into love? Um, and that's really hard and deep work. Um, you actually have been very helpful for me in that in, in framing this work around racial healing as opposed to, you know, th- these are all the concepts that we have to learn. And if we can sort of have fluency in those concepts, then we will be done. But that it's really about this ongoing iterative process of healing and reconciliation. And transformation is is not a is not a game and it's not something that you can think your way into. That's right. It's it's something that happens to you. That's right. Because you've opened yourself to the energy that, that can be transformative. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and many times that those moments are, are those moments of confession where boy, I, I thought, um, we, our good friend Gary Moore was at the luncheon yesterday. The first time I thought I met Gary Moore, I saw this older white guy from Alabama and I had some ideas about what I thought he was going to be like. (laughs) And I had to, and you know, I had to understand he's become one of my most beloved colleagues and friends. Um, and I had to work through some of my own stuff about, you know, as a person who's lived mostly in the North, what do I think about? white people in the South. Mm-hmm. What do I think about the white person living next door to me? Um, and uh, when, you, when you can sort of open yourself up to like, yes, you may look a certain way and that has probably nothing to do with what our relationship is going to be like. Right. Um, and, and it's hard to unlearn all of those things that we think that we know and understand. And we're focusing, we're focusing this conference around women of color and wellness, which has a lot to do with power and 
whether or not we can be uh, centrally connected to one another or whether or not we marginalize each other. And as we think about women together, can you say a little bit about how, as an Asian woman, you've been treated by women, other women of color or white women? Has, have, have people been willing to uh, accept you and, and realize that you're also a woman of color or, or do you find people of color not finding that easy to do? Um, in my work in the church in particular, um, because I live on the West Coast and I lived on the West Coast for such a long time and um, we're on the Pacific Rim, so Asian people are very present. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was interesting to kind of get back into places where people were still in a, caught in, I think, a black and white binary. Mm-hmm. So I've had um, black people tell me that I don't get to call myself a woman, a woman of color and that, you know, I've had... I've heard that um, someone who came to a workshop that I led said about me, well, you know, those Asian people, they always go white. Um, Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, that's the danger of binary thinking. So Mm -hmm. uh, my experience of racism is not the same as yours. Um, Part of the way that um, Asian people are racialized is that we are perpetual foreigners. Um, So for me to see an Asian American presidential candidate in Andrew Young I'm really interested to see how people are going to receive that um, because I'm just not sure that the United States can elect mm-hmm. an Asian American presidential can- president mm-hmm. uh, because of the ways that we are racialized. I travel with my passport all the time because one of my experience was that people presumed that I was an immigrant and maybe not a documented immigrant. Mm-hmm. Um, so the experience of racism is different. There are many times when I'm able to enter white spaces uh, in ways that my African-American sisters and brothers and colleagues could not because I'm viewed as being less threatening. Um, And there are times in Asian-American communities where my being very extroverted and outspoken and direct is viewed as being insufficiently Asian. (laughs) So um, I think um, people from many different racial and ethnic backgrounds can experience the sort of um, the external, the internal, you know, pull and push of how we are racialized in any given moment. Um, But my daughters who are multiracial are really now kind of inviting me to think differently beyond the white people, people of color binary, because their father is white and they see both parts of their family as really important parts of their personal, cultural, and spiritual identities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're saying, you know, can we think about multiracial um, as, as a holistic thing as opposed mm-hmm. to being something that is, you know, one plus one equals mm-hmm. maybe kind of one and a half, um, right. that they really want um, to push back on that. And that's hard for me. Um, when, when I filled out their school forms, I would always check Asian and my husband would check multiracial. And then that was a conversation in our family. Um, so I think, um, as a person who has experienced racism in a particular kind of way, um, it's really important then for me to understand how other people experience racism in a particular kind of way. Um, you know, and I know that as an Asian American person who grew up in the Midwest, I have different ideas than people who grew up in the East Coast and on the West Coast, um, people who immigrated at a later age than I did. Um, and that, again, if we're going to, we're going to call ourselves followers of Jesus, then it's, then it's up to me to not do the shorthand of, oh, 
you're a Korean immigrant who came here in 1993, so I know what your experience is about. Um, right. cause, because I can fall into that trap very easily, especially with my own people. Yes. Well, I think that, you know, that's such a, um, um, a challenge for all of us, the notion of allowing ourselves to not project onto other people, but to engage people and right. find out who they are and where they are and what what their life is like, rather than making up the story. Right. And the more we allow ourselves to be liberated, the easier it becomes That's right. to, to allow that to happen. And so the marginalizing of people becomes uh, less likely for us if we are willing to just hold on to those projections and just, I'll let you tell me who you are that's instead right. of me trying to tell you who you are. That's and, right. And that's, I think that's so important. And I think one of the ways that you have contributed to my spiritual wellness is that you model that really beautifully, that you can be in a very diverse room and to be the sort of solid, grounded, non-anxious presence that also expects people to show up and be engaged. You know, so that you are, you're loving and grounded and accepting and open and invitational while you're also saying, but don't come in here if you're not planning on doing the work. Right. Um, right. And I think that that's, you know, that is, that has for me created the wellness opportunity for me. I suppose, okay, my experience is not the same and I have something to offer and bring into this work. That's right. And that's, that's really kind of my model, you know, working in a servant leadership center is to think about, you know, with preschoolers, they have gifts to bring for leadership in the school, four-year-olds and five-year-olds. They know some stuff. They do. And how do we, how do we build their capacity to bring that forward in a way that is part of a brave space where they can fully be who they are as God created them to be Mm -hmm. and that we allow them to explore um, and to learn and experiment and to teach us and to transform us as they are being transformed. Well, thank you so much, Heidi, for that attitude, for the courage you have, for the ways in which you have uh, stood up in the world to, to help people catch a little better glimpse of who Jesus is. I'm thank so you. grateful that, we've, that we get to be on the path together and so grateful for your way of being in the world and for the gifts that you've brought to my life. And so thankful that you've been able to take out time to be with us for this conference and take out time for this conversation. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you as well. It's an honor to be here. I really appreciate being invited. You're welcome.